I'm not going to have you turn to anything in the Bible right now. I would like to pray, um, and we'll be using text throughout, throughout the message. Lord, I pray and ask that you would tend to us, your people, that we would live in a way satisfactorily before you and with you in this life. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. I want you to question the truthfulness of what I teach you this morning. And really, I want you to question the truthfulness of what is ever taught coming from the pulpit. You always should. I don't think you should question it based upon whether you think I'm stupid or smart or godly or ungodly, kind or stubborn, too shallow, too deep, certified or certifiable. More so question the truthfulness against the word of God. He is the one who matters. And then as you question it against the word of God, respond to it. And to me as God's minister, as, as, God's, as God would want you to, for good. For good. I'm not the only person trying to come to grip with, grip with God's truth today. So are you. You come into the service with many thoughts. Some are good, some are bad. Some are accurate, some are askew. Some biblical, some unbiblical. And in your soul, you want to hear certain things. I bet you like, you like hunger to hear certain things. But also there are things you might be hoping you don't hear. Finally, there's a part of you and me that, that is clueless. It's clueless to the deeper chambers of our minds where deception wrestles with truth to create doubt in place of assurance. God's Spirit will need to break down the door of those chambers because we don't even know what's behind those doors. The Green Bay Press-Gazette reported January 15th, one in... Ten Wisconsin teenagers say they attempted suicide in 2021. More than one-third of high schoolers feel sad or hopeless. Half of Wisconsin youth have been diagnosed with depression, anxiety, or behavioral problems. I'm reading it, right? Who came up with this information? It was a report given by the Wisconsin office of children's mental health, a state agency with the Department of Health Service. It so happens that they met prior to this with state legislators and what they call stakeholders and members of the media. Stakeholders, if you don't know, means the organizations that work in this mental health industry. Stakeholders. What did the Office of Children's Mental Health say was causing these problems? They reported that the stressors included academic pressures, widespread gun violence, racism, and discrimination, especially with regard to anti-LGBTQ policies, political divisiveness, and climate change. They also said that some of the stressors came from more general things, impacts, the impact of, of families on the harm of young people, the state's lack of childcare options, financial insecurity, food insecurity, and housing instability. 
The Office of Children's Mental Health flagged some additional areas of concern, like, like maybe warning signs. And this is what they saw. Enrollment numbers have plummeted in early childcare education. Vaping habits have doubled among teenagers. And there has been a decline in extracurricular activities. There's also been a dramatic jump, they said, in screen time use. Screen time use. Cell phones, tablets, laptops, or TV. They said five years ago, just 40% of Wisconsin students spent more than three hours looking at screens unrelated to schoolwork. As of the last report, a whopping 75% of Wisconsin students were glued to their screens for three-plus hours a day. There's also been a drop in children entering 4K programs. This concerns Amy Marsman, a senior research analyst in the office, because she says 90% of a child's brain typically develops in the first five years. Early child care education establishes foundational emotional and mental health, which supports positive behavior and healthy social connections while encouraging conflict resolution. One more thing, research overwhelmingly pointed to the power of a trusted adult in a child's life. But according to the latest report, Wisconsin is headed in the wrong direction with students saying they have fewer trusted adults in their lives. This is especially true for children of color. Parents and caregivers similarly also aren't showing up as much to support their children's activities. The state of clinical care is also telling Although the number of psychiatrists and school-based mental health professionals has grown over the last five years, these counts remain far below the recommended ratio levels. That was that article. In a different article, the Gazette reported that Wisconsin Governor Evers has announced the creation of an interagency council on mental health. The purpose of the agency will be to reduce access barriers and address gaps in mental health services. According to the American Psychological Association, the severity of mental health symptoms continues to worsen and the wait lists for new patients to see a psychologist increasingly widens. I, I cringe when I read articles like these. Because I don't believe the Office of Children's Mental Health or Governor Evers is able to provide any lasting solution for these despairing youth. It's a sad situation to have so many children without God's peace in their lives, isn't it? And yet, secular psychologists will not offer God as the only sure remedy to fix them, if he has offered them at all. The Office of Children's Mental Health may have kind and concerned people, probably do. Governor Evers, I'm sure he has a soft spot too. However, both are misguided if they do not respect God as the primary influencer in all of life. The primary influencer. Not centering things on God leads to mental health professionals falsely. Falsely identifying the primary causes of anxiety and depression and suicidal thoughts. Yet God's relation to man, sin, mercy, love, fear, guilt, shame, responsibility, salvation, the Holy Spirit, God's word, all of these, what? They're left outside the secular counseling office. None of them are mentioned in either article. 
as you well know, God gets no place in secular society. Yet society is filled with fragile people, with fragile minds, born into fragile families, and hard times break fragile things. Enter the church. Christ has given to her the remedy for the fragile soul. She brings the the leaves, you you could say, of the tree of life to heal and strengthen people. At least she's supposed to. For the Christian realizes that the answers of the soul are not found if you keep your eyes down here. If you look to the person's soul or to society to provide a fix, then you're going to fail the fragile soul. You must look heavenward. If people experience fear and despair, so life-altering, attention-consuming, then surely God has provided scriptural promises and direction, hasn't he? So, I called this sermon, We Start With God. We start with God, God the creator. He is our maker, our former, our fashioner, designer, the potter of the clay from which we were made. Of the two parts of man, one was made from the ground. He made our bodies, it said, from the dust and then breathe the soul into our nostrils. The soul is the second part. So we start with the one who made us, and after we were made, we fell into sin. So something else needed to happen. Our creator became our savior too, our redeemer and friend. The one who inhabits us now by his spirit, our sanctifier, our almighty Father, Father. Yes, we start with God. He created us. He owns us. And he knows how he created us. He knows what we need. There are no mysteries. Nothing is hidden from him in all creation, and certainly nothing is hid from him in your soul. Our body is not a barrier to prevent his presence and his work in us. Our brains, as complicated as they are, have no hasp with a padlock that can keep and lock him out. As godly Job wrestled with the trials and temptations of body and soul, he got to a point of reasoning, Job did, where he didn't allow God to be God. He had put mental constraints upon his maker. They were errant thoughts. And so God sets Job straight in chapter 38 of that book where it says, Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you. You make it known to me. I'm thinking like, yikes. This is going to surely clear up Job's mind. I guarantee you that. God continues. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me, if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On on what were its bases sunk, or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together, and all the sons of God shouted for joy. 
like three sentences. And I'm quite certain Job knows already where this is going. Surely, Job's perspective has already been sobered. He sees things clearly now. I think if we don't get too full of ourselves, right, which is always a a challenge, and up into our own heads, boy, we'll do much better to take comfort in how wonderful God is and how necessary he is for us. The thing is, once we've gotten too up into our own heads and thought too much about ourselves, we need him to extract us from that. Absolutely. Well, God continues stripping down Job's small his small God conception. He had a small God conception. And Job was a godly man. God says to him, Or who shut in the sea with doors? Who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb? When I made clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band and prescribed limits for it and set bars and doors and said, thus far shall you come and no farther. And here shall you, here shall you proud waves be stayed. A little later, he says, have you entered the storehouses of the snow? He's asking Job still. Or have you seen the storehouses of the hail, which I have reserved for the time of trouble, for the day of battle and war? What is the way to the place where the light is distributed or where the east wind is scattered upon the earth? You get the idea. Sometimes we think we know so much. We think we've got it all figured out or can figure it out without him. Let God be true and exalted and every man a liar. And humbled. That's Job's situation right now. God is true and exalted. What is Job? Humbled and realizing he was wrong. After two chapters of these questions, the Lord concludes by saying, Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer it. Then Job answered the Lord, and he said, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once, and I will not answer twice, but... I will proceed no further. That is wise. Job has learned something. Even as a godly man, Job has learned an important lesson. God is more than you can fathom. More than you will allow him to be. Yes, we must start with God. God gave you and me his word. He has spoken. He has spoken to us. And we can fully trust what he has said. Furthermore, we know if he said it, if he said it, then we can obey it. You've got to hear that. We can obey it. We can obey him out of love. If we want to, we can obey him out of love if we want to. Nothing can get in the way of that. No body part. A sick person lying in bed can love and obey God. The lame, blind, and deaf can fully love and obey God. The person suffering dementia 
or some other brain calamity can still fully love and obey God. Because the part of man that decides to love God and obey is the inner man that God breathed into us, not the outer man. Indeed, we will love him even after our outer man is buried in the earth. We will love him still. We should never accept the compromise of this reality. No matter the circumstance, no matter the limitation, God is with us and loves us and desires our love and obedience. Never say, but you don't understand my situation. Never say, but I'm different. As a human, I understand throughout the course of history, all the humans, but I'm different. This requires, of course, that the person be born again. Okay, given new life for his soul from above. Each fallen man requires the Spirit of God to blow into him. The Holy Spirit, yes. He affects a change to a person's inner man because the inner man was affected and changed after creation, throttled down by sin. Even worse than throttled down, I, I suppose, for we became dead, it says, in our trespasses and sins, dead. We were as hopeless as a corpse on the bottom of the sea. God's Holy Spirit has to make the inner man alive. And he does and will. Jesus paid for it. When Jesus becomes your Savior and the Holy Spirit blows into you, then that word of God there, then the word of God, it becomes alive to you. It has power attached to it. Now, the biblical word speaks advantageously to the soul. We grow. We respond by faith to all the new things God wants to show us. Our communion with him has become reestablished, refounded. It's the key to overcoming your fears. We have hope, we become stronger, we love, and become less afraid. We find peace, not all at once, but we find peace to be an ever-growing part of this life's experience. I want to step back a second and consider our frame in Genesis 2-7. This is what it says. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. Okay, here you have the material part of man and the immaterial part called his soul. The visible outer part of man and the invisible inner the earthly, sensual part and the higher, rational part fit. That part fit with the ability to commune with its maker. As creator and potter, God was responsible for both parts of man. Using the dust of the earth, the Lord had finished forming man's physical body, but still... It had no life in it. It had no life in it. It could not think or, or feel or choose or rule or commune. Man, Matthew Poole writes, was but a lump of clay or a comely statue. 
you should know that previously, before he created man, God had given the breath of life to the beasts and the birds and the creeping things, but the breath was given through the earth itself. It says in Genesis 1.24, And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And so it was. Then in Genesis 1.30 it says, And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, so the animate Creatures are more like us in that way than plants and rocks, but they're not image bearers. But in Genesis 2-7, God gives the breath of life or the soul of life to Adam in a special way. He breathes into his nostrils. John Gill said, God quickened it, the handsome statue. He quickened it. God decided, this one we make in our image. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God. He created him, male and female, he created them. Genesis 1, 27. You got to believe this. Man is special. You are special. You are made in God's image, and you were only completed when he breathed into Adam's nostril, imparting to us a special soul, enjoining us to a higher purpose than that of all other creatures. In the first part of the verse, Genesis Two, seven, seven. The body was not animate. It was not alive without the soul. The body without the soul is dead. Today it decays when the soul is taken. It returns to dust. A soulless body, if it were to become animate would need to be inhabited by some other spiritual creature. So much for zombies, Atticus. But this is Bible talk. And it's not how scientific materialist people would view mankind, is it? For the materialist thinks of man as only physical with senses and eyes and ears and nose and fingers and brain activities and chemicals and nerves and lungs and heartbeat. He thinks of man monistically or as one part, not dualistically as two parts. So the scientific materialist thinks that when you die, it's because, what? Your body parts stopped working. That's it. There's no soul returning to its maker stuff. God did not take your soul, and that's why you died. No, sir. Scientific materialism offers people, what? No future but worms. Nothing else, no hope, no faith, no love. This is not new. I was reading from John Frame, and he tells of the Greek Stoics. The Greek Stoics, Frame says, like the Epicureans, the Stoics were materialists, teaching that only physical objects were real. The soul itself was made of what? Very fine matter. The soul was made of very fine matter. Rocks and dirt were made of coarser matter. Even virtues, they said, are material. But they can exist in the same place as other matter, so virtues can be in the soul, is what the Stoics argued. 
To that I say God made man upright, but he goes in search of many schemes. Ecclesiastes 7.29 Many of us grew up under decades of secular humanism. Science proposing to have all the answers. And so there's a part of me that gets real concerned when men give a lot of credit to the body as if it held the answers to the mysteries of how we work. And it does, to a degree, explain some things. But I get nervous because I think God's special breathed into soul, the design of the soul, that when we make too much out of the body, it becomes secondary. Because if you make the soul second to the body, then the body can come to determine one's ability to commune with God from the soul. To have communion with him. The body can interfere. Also, Scripture maintains a different primacy regarding man's composition. It is the soul that gives life to the body, while the body without the soul is dead. So somehow, the Christian at least can believe, right? Solomon gives this advice. Wise Solomon in the book of Ecclesiastes. Vanity of vanity, all of vanity. He gets to the end. And he, and he tells you and me, Oh, remember your creator in the days of your youth. And then he goes on this litany, this litany of things that describe an old person about to die. And after this litany of old age description, he gets to the end of that description and he writes, before the silver cord is snapped, which is a metaphor for death, right? Or the golden bowl is broken, or the pitcher is shattered at the fountain, or the wheel broken at the cistern, and the dust returns to the earth as it was, and the spirit returns to to God who gave it. Remember your creator in your youth. Yes, the soul is the loftier part of man, not his earthly physical tent. It does not make the earthly physical tent bad. That's not what I'm saying. It is good to serve its purpose. Second thing I want to point out is God is truth. When we start with God, we know that whatever he tells us is true without qualification. We can depend upon it fully. We can depend upon him fully. He keeps his word intact. He, he keeps every promise. He teaches and corrects all faults in us according to his word. He's not a liar. His world and all things were made good, upright. They've become a bit broken because of sin and the curse, along with our bodies. And yet these created things, they testify still to God's truth. They even testify to God, according to Romans 1.20, where it says his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world, in the things that have been made. God is the God of truth. He operates no other way. Satan lies. Demons lie. And men lie too. There are lying philosophies, lying religions, lying psychological approaches. There's lying at the local pub, Lying to your friend, lying to your spouse, lying to yourself. Make no mistake, not everything that has been discovered or invented is true. 
Some of it is so warped, contrived, contaminated, and harmful that we must spot it and, and remove ourselves from its leprosy. Furthermore, as we wrestle with our faith, hope, love, along with our fears, anxieties, and phobias, we must keep in mind that not everything we say we feel about ourselves is true. I'm going to say that again. Not everything we say we feel about ourselves is true. I know that comes off sounding like I'm suggesting we disregard a person's feelings. But stick with me. What if the person is feeling something God would say is highly inappropriate? Like those contemplating suicide in the article, the kids at school. Highly inappropriate self-murder. Or, or what if God's word confronts a lie that a person clings to? Like the LGBTQers from this article. Now what if those young people say, I can't help it. It's the way I've been made. It's the way I am. I want to suggest that just because a person announces some thought or feeling, it doesn't make it legitimate. Okay? It doesn't make it legitimate just because. In fact, we disrespect God if we say, well, it must be true for Johnny if he says so. Is there not a place to deny someone their feelings? I mean, modern man goes so far, and we've seen this, to claim his own truth. It's my truth. I'm living by my truth. Or she's living her truth, they say. Yet that is truth relativism. It is pretending we can be God and make our own reality. It is agreeing with them that God's truth, what? God's truth can be shelved. And their own truth can be used in place of it. That is a recipe to further fractal, fracture the fragile person. Now, we who suffer anxiety and fear and phobia, I want to suggest that our version, that our version of inner truth, our version of inner truth is likely a misrepresentation of reality. Probably you don't disagree with that. Our version of inner truth is likely a misinterpretation of reality. What I'm saying is that you might be believing a lie. I'm quite sure you would like to be free from anything of that sort. Me too. And I don't say this to you as an accusation as much as I do as a help. Because I think the answers are here. The answers are here with God getting straightened out. For God wants you to live and think and act on truth. His truth. God wants you to live a life at peace. His peace. Not as the world gives as only Jesus can give. So how do we know the truth? God has got to help us here. Jesus prayed for you. Well, he was still on the earth. It's in John 17. And as I read his prayer, you should listen to what truth is, all right? According to Jesus, at least. At one point, he says to his father, I'm coming to you. And these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Joy? Yeah, let's have some more of that. I'm all for that. These youths in the public schools would probably be all for that. Verse 14, I have given them your word and the world has hated them. Not so great. 
The world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. That would be nice. Protection from the evil one. I'm all over that one too. Verse 16. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Here it comes. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. Not that a lot of that did sound like a cup of tea, right? With the world hating you and all. But to have the Father and the Son and joy and truth and sanctification, it becomes all right if you have to put up with the world not liking you. I choose Christ. Now you may be saying, wait a minute, I've read that before. Wasn't he praying for his disciples who were with him? Yeah. But he keeps going to get to us. Verse 20, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, and that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you love me. I'm all over that too. God loves me. So God reveals truth in his word. Kind of my last point. It's something else he breathed. Is the word of God sufficient to meet the needs of our soul? Are we able by it, along with the strength of the Holy Spirit, are we able to love and obey God without any defeat? It's what Scripture confirms over and over again. And I was saying this to Calvin the other day, and I... Don't worry, I'm not sharing all I was saying to you the other day, Calvin. That was exposing my own memory histories, which I really wanted to get to that today, but we will not. We'll get there. But I will not let my inner man have no one to turn to since God saved me. You should not either. I will not let people take my access to God away from me, not the world, not the devil, not my body, not arguments. And by access, I mean to love him, right? To love him with ever-growing love and to keep his commands. I think even with a brain injury or dementia like my grandmother had or Alzheimer's, I don't know which she had, the myriad of issues that can affect my physical frame and its tools, right? Still, I will not excuse any distancing of myself from him. For I do not believe he will excuse it, nor let me go from him, thank God. Jesus told me, I will never leave you or forsake you. So if I'm sitting in that wheelchair, in that nursing home, three years from now, because my children are impatient, and I'm drooling, and it seems like I have a hard time communicating or even knowing who you are, I fully believe I can love the Lord my God with all my heart, soul, and mind. That's the argument. So in 2 Timothy 3, 16, 17 asserts all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. I'm all over that. And 
What do you do but agree with him and believe that the Bible will give us direction to become complete obeyers of God? What is the alternative? To put aside Scripture as insufficient. Doesn't quite answer all my problems. Put it aside. Or to give up on the idea that we can even love and obey him, but rather give way to entertaining our sinful thoughts, our predilections and our behavior with the potential of becoming truly slaves to sin. Christian psychologist, a man named William Kirk Kilpatrick, he explains, this is a quote, there is ample evidence that the phenomenon Christians call slavery to sin does in fact exist. You may, as is the modern habit, call it what you like, but there are reasons not to remove the label. The word sin, repentance, and forgiveness all imply freedom and responsibility. Hear those two words. When you take away those labels, you very often take away freedom and responsibility as well. In other words, if you take away the labels of sin and repentance and forgiveness. And... Now this is what has happened by and large, he goes on. We have taken the phenomenon of slavery to sin and renamed it sickness. Christians can go along partway with this idea because they believe that one form of sin, original sin, is in effect a genetic disorder. But when we come down to particular sins, the Christian will not be so hasty about transforming them into medical matters. In the first place, this is still Kirkpatrick, in the first place, the parallel between sin and sickness is not a good one. Sin is often seen as an exciting and pleasurable possibility. Sickness is not. Men do not pursue arthritis the way they pursue adultery. In the second place, it is a poor complement to the species in order to us as people, as men and women. It robs us of the real dignity we have, which is the freedom of choosing the good. The reverse side of the coin stamped Smith's sin is only a sickness is Smith's virtue is vitamin-based. If sin is a sickness, then goodness is just because of the vitamins you're taking. That's my explanation. It is a way of reducing a human being to the level of a walking chemistry shop. Often it is a disposition to be generous and kind that makes us excuse other people's faults as sicknesses, but how much of a kindness is it? Is that the way we would like others to think of our own misdeeds? Do we want to be patted on the head like children while some grown-up makes excuses for us? Poor Billy, he can't help himself. Or worse, poor Billy, he was born with an endorphin deficiency. End quote. I, I kind of feel like we can't be, what, what can't be done is you can't accept the notion that fault, sin, is to be placed on your physical condition or your lot in life. You, that, you are the, that you are the victim of suicidal thoughts, that you're a victim of that. You are a victim of fear. You are a victim of not loving God and recognizing his steadfast loving kindness and nearness. That you are the victim of having little faith. Now somehow these are all on us. They are this, the decisions you make and I make. They are matters of your heart, soul, and mind. The inner man. If we get a place, if we get to a place where we say that we are no longer responsible for sin, or that sin
If we get to a place where we say we are no longer responsible for, for sin, then there really is no need for forgiveness. There is no need to be sanctified. There is no need for God and his church and his word. One last thing. The CRC, our tradition is to hold to the confessions, the three confessions, Belgic Confession, Heidelberg Catechism, and the uh, Canons of Dort. This is what it says about Scripture, God revealing himself, God saying, thus saith the Lord. This is what it says about the sufficiency of Scripture and how paramount it is to understanding ourselves, God, and our ethical obligations, right? According to the Confession, Article 7, we believe that this Holy Scripture contains the will of God completely and that everything one must believe to be saved is sufficiently taught in it. Don't run away with this idea. It says, but to be saved. All that we're worried about is how to be saved. No, that's not what this is going to say at all, although that's part of it. For since the entire manner of service which God requires of us is described in it at great length, no one, even an apostle or an angel from Heaven, as Paul says, ought to teach other than the Holy Scriptures have already taught us. For since it is forbidden to add to the Word of God or take away from it, it is plainly demonstrated that the teaching is perfect and complete in all respects. Therefore, we must not consider human writings, no matter how holy their authors have been, may have been, equal to the divine writings, nor may we put custom, nor the majority, nor age, nor the passage of times or persons, nor councils, decrees, or official decisions above the truth of God. For truth is above everything else. For all human beings are liars by nature and more vain than vanity itself. Therefore, we reject with all our hearts everything that does not agree with this infallible rule as we are taught to do by the apostles when they, when they say, Test the spirits to see whether they are from God, and also do not receive into the house or, or welcome anyone who comes to you and does not bring this teaching. God's word is sufficient to meet the needs of the matters of the soul with his spirit. All right. We will get into some of the complicating factors and challenges. But I end with that. I'll pray. Lord, I, I ask you to build us up in our faith that our hope would truly be in you and that we would love you with all of our hearts, minds, and souls. In Jesus' name.